Saturday Live was presented by John McCarthy and Sean Williams and was produced by Harry Parker. On the 4th of January 2011, the self-made millionaire businessman and governor of Punjab, Salman Tasir, was gunned down in broad daylight by one of his own guards. The killing was in retribution for Tazir's support for a 45-year-old Christian woman who'd been sentenced to death for blasphemy. In a drama documentary, the BBC correspondent Owen Bennett-Jones pieces together the extraordinary events. He's met with Tazir's family and friends, and he's also spoken to the family of the assassin, who has widespread support in Pakistan. Blasphemy and the Governor of Punjab is here on BBC Radio 4 this afternoon at half past two. What's it like to be reshuffled? Sue Cameron of the Daily Telegraph finds out in half an hour from the former Labour Minister Lord Hutton and the former top civil servant Sir Richard Mottram. The week in Westminster is at 11 o'clock. First, Steve Punt returns as Radio 4's very own gumshoe. And this week, Steve's called to Lancashire to investigate a rather deadly bequest. It's another case for Punt P.I. This is Punt's private eye. I'm not here right now. Please leave a message. Punt, it's Tracy. Queer one, this. An exceedingly odd discovery at a removals firm. A rather unusual legacy. Get yourself up north and prepare for a big surprise. Well, what are you waiting for? Message ends. Tracy wasn't exactly spelling it out. An unusual legacy? Had he dialed the wrong number? Did he want the Antiques Roadshow or David Dickinson? What could it all mean? With nothing but a postcode to guide me, I hit the road. Straight on, then take the motorway. Past Birmingham, Stoke and points north. M6, then go straight on. As I pass turnings for Wigan and Blackpool, I wondered what sort of legacy Tracy was talking about. Had a long-lost aunt left me a monogrammed snuffbox? Would I have to find house room for a Regency armoire? What was this surprise? There was something in Tracy's tone that alarmed me. Something that spelt trouble with a capital T. Now right on the roundabout, third exit. Turning off the motorway at Lancaster, I found myself in Morecambe. Turn right, then turn right. My sat-nav was guiding me to the postcode, which turned out to be a business park. In fact, several business parks. The sat-nav seemed to be trying to tell me something. Turn around when possible. Uh-oh. Something ominous, some sort of warning that the business I would find at the business park was none of my business. Or maybe I'd just programmed it wrong. Either way, I finally found what I was looking for. Atlas removals. Thanks, OK. Listen, I've got to go. In charge, Sandy Michaels. Hi, yeah. Alongside business partner, Andrew Haywood. Do you want coffee or tea or anything? I take my tea strong, with no ice. And mug in hand, we retired to Sandy and Andrew's porter cabin, where they told me their story. It started, as stories so often do, on an ordinary day. The day in question being in 2007, when a man in his early 70s turned up with a request. He walked into our office and said, could you ship my personal possessions to America? 13 trunks, and we collected them from a place in Milham, in Cumbria. And then 
2010, he decided to contact us again and ask us to do the same in reverse. Right. Which was to ship his 13 trunks back to the UK. This guy was a respectful, polite, elderly chap. So far, still quite ordinary. And eventually we got the trunks. And then we met him once after he came back. Yeah, and he paid right. in cash. <laughs> Left me the B&B address and, and where he was staying. And that was the last time we saw him. Sandy and Andrew took me to where the elderly emigres 13 trunks were stored and where this everyday story of house clearance this is our massive big warehouse. would become rather less clear. The trunks were in here in one of the boxes. They all have separate names on, as you can see. Yeah. So we stored them with his name on, just as they came from... from um, America. We didn't hear from him for about a year, eight, a year, months. 18 months. Yeah. So I then decided to ring the B&B and they told us he passed away. He'd gone to the big guest house in the sky without ever reclaiming those trunks. Right. And that's when we decided to say, listen, we better open these trunks because we have no next of kin, no wife, no children. We had nothing on, on the guy. So in the day of question, we opened up the container, pulled out the 13 trunks... And then, one by one, we systematically had to break the locks. At first glance, there was nothing out of the ordinary in those trunks. Clothing, books, um, CDs. CDs and pictures, that kind of thing. But CDs and books were not the full story. It was just when we obviously started looking a bit deeper in these trunks that all of a sudden one of the guys said, ''What's this?'' It's a gun. Astonishment. 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 Is it a toy gun? You know, everybody was laughing about it at first. Till then you open another trunk and there's boxes of ammunition and you think, hang on, and you open a third trunk. You find another gun yeah. and then in another trunk you find another gun. Then you think, this is getting serious. And the more we looked, the more we found. And it's, where does this end? Indeed. The guns were just the beginning. Sandy and Andrew quickly called the police, and the police turned up. Lots of police. The whole place was sealed off and treated as a crime scene. People in white suits came in. And one of the armed response unit chaps, he said he'd been doing this job for 15 years and he hadn't seen anything like it. As the trunks were opened one by one, a frightening inventory emerged. Handguns. About four handguns. Four five. And then there was... Some on the holsters. Yeah. There was about five knives. Um, there were about ten green metal boxes, completely full with little boxes of hundreds, ammunition. Hundreds, hundreds, of, hundreds of, of rounds of ammunition. There was a, 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 a leather strap with a holster which go around the lower end of your leg with a, a small, a smallish knife. Um... A couple of knives. Smoke bombs. Smoke bombs. There were some smoke bombs as well. It all started to feel like a rather sinister edition of the Generation game. Tasers. Tasers. <laughs> tasers. <coughs> I think there was a couple of tasers. Different models yeah, of tasers. there were more than one, definitely. Pepper spray. There was a pepper spray, there was. Yeah. Mm. One or two. And next on the conveyor belt... Sound listening device. Yeah, the surveillance the equipment. equipment yeah. Which was the listening device, the, 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 the night monocular, which was obviously used for surveillance at night time. And as if that wasn't enough... Um, there was the book, the hardback book. It was designed to look like a book, 
and from from the outside it looked like a book but you opened up the front cover and inside it was just a hollow in the shape of a revolver so it designed to carry a revolver in public without anybody knowing there were these hooks which all look pretty innocent when you've got them separately but when the police were investigating us they did say when all these items are put together they are all equipment to make a bomb Basically. Really? Yeah. Proper one-man army. Unsurprisingly, discovering that they had been harbouring the hardware of a one-man army left Andrew and Sandy shell-shocked. You think, who was this guy, really? It doesn't seem like the same person as what we met. The guy we knew was a a retired... a pensioner. Yeah. And you don't expect to find all those weapons from someone who's retired, who's just living a quiet life. Yeah. It, did, it didn't add up. Too right it didn't, and nor did the next revelation. He had two names. He had an alias. He, he, Bernard Bullen yeah. was his original name. Yes. And then sometime in the past, he changed the name to Chris Rogers. Are you double D-J-E-R-S? The man's a mystery. Yeah. 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 He really is, isn't he? <laughs> he really is. Did the police ever give you any updates? Did they ever get back to you? No. Never came back. They just took it all away that evening and never came back. Right. Never said anything about it afterwards, so don't know what happened to it. With that in mind, it was hard to know where to start. Who was this Mr Bullen stroke Rogers? Or at least, who did he say he was? He used to be an anaesthetist. An elderly anaesthetist with an arsenal of small arms. It sounded like the pitch for a slightly strange film. Were there any clues to understanding why a heavily armed pensioner had been packing heat into packing crates in a storage depot in Morecambe? Maybe there was one. Sandy remembered another item which sounded intriguing. The police found a letter. Was it FBI? It was addressed to... Was it CIA? CIA. CIA? Tantalising. But that's all Sandy could remember. And the police removed the letter, along with another crucial clue from Mr Bullen stroke Rogers. He gave me um, a little business card of the B&B he was staying in. But you gave this card to the police? Yes. Can you remember the, the name no. of the guest house? I really can't. We've been trying very hard to, to think, and I really can't. Damn. Did you have any sort of thoughts or theories about what he might have been? Yeah, obviously led a double life. <laughs> what the, the other life was, we don't know. We only got the one side told to us. And then, a chilling suggestion. I mean, before we know him, someone might have been murdered by him. That's a pretty strong word. Thank you very much. By the time I'd finished my tea, my head was spinning. Oh, yeah, don't worry, we will. I tried to sound confident, but I knew this would be a tough case to crack, or even dent. The police had removed most of the leads, so I put in a call to them, appealing for help. In the meantime, I decided to try and find that B&B. Sandy had mentioned it was in Lytham. Well, surely there couldn't be too many. Could there? Time to bash the phones. Oh, hi there, that's Claremont, is it? Oh, good morning. That's Tudor House, is it? 
Oh, particular right, guest that stayed. By the name of Chris. His Rogers. name was Chris Rogers. Are you double D J? Or, or he might have been called Bernard Buller. Um, bear in mind both names. I was only hampered by two small right. details. A, a man with two names might easily have three right. or four. Oh, hello. That's. The and one. B, uh, Lytham, had more guest houses than I thought. Oh, hello. Is that the Monaco Hotel? Really, quite a lot more. Cross <laughs> off the list. Uh, you've been very good. Having made contact with pretty much every Thank B&B you. in the Lytham area, I'd drawn a blank. Thanks, bye-bye. To make matters worse, the police weren't being hugely Thank forthcoming. You. Thank you very much, bye-bye. They seemed genuinely unconcerned. They confirmed that four semi-automatic handguns had been found, but apart from that, investigating officers were keeping mum. So I needed the next best thing, someone who knew about guns. Good morning. Enter... David Dyson. These are prohibited weapons. Barrister and firearms consultant. You cannot lawfully possess one without the authority of the Secretary of State. Right. To the extent that if somebody is in possession of one of these guns, just one gun, you're looking at a minimum mandatory five-year prison sentence. The police had also told me that the weapons had not been linked to any crime. But how could they know that? Yes. Um, when guns are recovered by the police, they are test-fired. So rounds of the appropriate calibre would be fired, the bullets would be collected, and they would be sent then to the National Ballistics Intelligence Service, NABIS. And NABIS would then compare the bullets and the cartridge cases to bullets and cartridge cases that have been recovered from incident scenes, from crime scenes. Are they that individual, then? Generally speaking, yes. You may be familiar with rifling. It's the twists that you get down the barrel, yeah. which imparts spin to the bullet, and that makes it more stable in, in flight. You'll probably remember seeing, um, at the beginning of a James Bond film, the camera pans down the barrel of a gun, and you can see the twists in there. There's normally a girl dancing at the end of it. I do remember that. So what did David make of the most 007-like part of the hall? One of the most uh, intriguing items in this case was, um, uh, believe it or not, a, a book uh, hollowed out in the shape of a gun inside. Well, you can only assume that the chap wanted to carry a concealed weapon in a, a manner that wouldn't arouse any form of suspicion. Yes. It's so obvious in a way... But, um, yeah, it's going to be effective, isn't it? If, if you did see somebody walking down a street with a book, are you going to say, oh, that's probably hollowed out and there's a gun in it? Yeah. No, I don't think so. Indeed. But if the guns weren't used in any crime, did that mean I could close the case? David thought not. It was the other items that worried him. When you add this other element, the chemicals, I understand a suggestion that these chemicals could have been used for bomb-making... Well, that just seems to me to make the whole thing far more suspicious. It takes it to a different level, doesn't it? It's, uh, it becomes far more sinister. But what his motivation is, whether he was just some chap who thought, oh, I'm going to protect myself when uh, the revolution comes, or whether he was somebody who wanted to target somebody specifically and murder someone, who can tell? That word, again... Were those guns for pot shots at tin cans in the backyard, or was this the day of the jackal relocated to Morecambe? Was he an assassin? And given that the crates had passed unopened through customs, might it be that it wasn't Bullen's stuff at all? That it had been put there without his knowledge? Was he just a patsy? There was so little to go on. I ordered up his birth and death certificates to see if they could shed any light. 
While I was waiting for them to arrive, two items on the inventory caught my attention. The listening device and night vision monocular. So here we are, number three, Portman Square. In London, I had an appointment at Spymaster, which sells these very items. Once I'd secured entry, I was led down a corridor lined with posters for Bond films. So, Quantum of Solace, Russia with Love, uh, Never Say Never Again, Diamonds of Forever. My very own cue was Lee Marks. OK, well, this is a door from a vehicle that we've armoured. If you look at the window, you'll see there's four shots being fired at the window there in a the pattern. Yes, and yes. And that is telling me that that's come from a Glock semi-automatic handgun, 9mm. Then we've got two shots being fired at the window there. You can see that the window's been shattered. Yes. But it hasn't gone through, and that's gone... Come it was impressive stuff, but I didn't think I needed a bulletproof car at this stage in the investigation. And sadly, I couldn't really justify ordering their one-man submarine either. But I did wonder if Lee could shed any light on the listening device that Sandy at the removals firm had described to me. Small earpiece with wires coming out and a suction cup. OK. And it was in a, a brown cream case. Does, does that ring any bells absolutely that sounds like a listen through wall device the thing that looked like a suction cap is something that you would hold against a wall or a window perhaps right and it has a wire going into the box that you described and then an earpiece would be coming out of that same box and it would be it could be used for listening through walls why would an anaesthetist be needing to listen through walls while I was pondering this, his birth and death certificates arrived. They confirmed that he'd been born Bernard Bullen in Southport and that he died Chris Rogers, age 74. So could I trace any of his family? I wrote letters to all the Bullens I could find in the Southport area, but drew a blank. However, there was one promising clue. The death certificate showed that once again our man had left a false trail. Bullen's last address, the B&B, &B, wasn't in Lytham at all, but in Southport. A man called Chris Rogers. I gave them a call. I think he might have stayed at your hotel. But alas, um, it had changed hands since Rogers stayed there, and my attempts to track down the previous owners failed. However, I did discover that Rogers had moved into a nursing home just before just he died. Whether you might remember a man called the owner of the home was happy to speak, but couldn't shed any light on the enigmatic anaesthetist, only to say that no family had ever come to visit. Thank you very much. All right, bye-bye. Bernard Bullen, or Chris Rogers, was proving as elusive as ever, so it was back to the only concrete evidence I had, the haul from the crates. The listening device, plus the dummy book, plus the apparent letter from the CIA, had me wondering whether he'd been some sort of undercover agent. At an age where many would have been drawing a pension, was he still busy on Her Majesty's Secret Service? Magazine. Mark Birdsell is the editor of I Spy magazine. If somebody asked me, could this chap be any way connected to the intelligence services, I would have to say no. Oh. Because MI5 agents do not carry firearms, and it is the same with officers serving with MI6. But what about across the pond? You're more likely to find an agent or an operative in America carrying a firearm, but usually when they go operational, they don't have this amount of equipment on them 
it could be that you know uh, he may have worked for other organisations. I don't know. Hmm. What other organisations could he possibly mean? For example, the Russian equivalent of MI5, uh, the FSB. It's not unusual for their officers to carry firearms. Was our man ex-KGB a Cold War veteran? Or was my imagination running away with me? Mark brought it smartly to a halt with another interesting and alarming possibility. I did send a list to an associate in London and he was a former British agent in Northern Ireland who, who was involved with weapons and things like this and I asked, what's your opinion? He was fairly satisfied that had he just been shown that and not received any other background on this chap that those items probably belong to a, a small terror cell. It is a terrorist wish list. I've seen enough movies to know that you must suspect everyone and trust no one. But does a Southport retiree fit the profile of a terrorist? To know that, I would have to know more about Bernard Bullen. Or should that be Chris Rogers? He'd said he was an anaesthetist, but was that true? Was our 007 ever a doctor? No, not in the UK anyway. Michaels revealed that he was never registered here. But he was registered in the US as a nurse anaesthetist. I even found a previous address in Texas, but again, attempts to make contact with ex-neighbours failed. And that could only mean one thing. My excuse for an all-expenses-paid trip to the US had also failed, and I was forced to continue inquiries on this side of the Atlantic. I was on the move again. When he returned to the UK sometime prior to 2007, Rogers had lived in Millam, Cumbria, before his final stint in the US. It was time to head back up the M6. First exit. And off the M6, onto smaller roads. Quite a lot smaller. Six foot six, except for access. Some of them really small. Turn right back onto the main road you were on in the first place. Wary of diversionary tactics, I skirted the southern edge of the Lake District, where some other road users didn't seem to appreciate the urgency of my mission. World of caravan. And it became slowly obvious that if you wanted to disappear, Millam wouldn't be a bad place to start. Quite a long way over. One of the few items not removed by the police was paperwork detailing the exact bungalow where Rogers had lived. The sat-nav had brought me via the back roads to the mean streets of Millam. It was time to conduct some door-to-door inquiries. Hello. Sorry to disturb you. Um, we're tr- trying to find out about the man who used Hello. to live back Sorry to disturb you. I just referred to you by your name. A few years ago. Did, did, did you know him by any chance? No. Oh, the sort of intriguing story about the man who used to live in number eight. Mr. Rogers, I just wondered whether you knew him or remembered him. I wasn't having much joy. Were the locals closing ranks? Thank you very much. Finally, I came to the very residence where, according to the paperwork, Rogers had lived. Single story, neatly tended, it all looked promising. Until the current owner took a look at me. Hello. 
Hello. He was sending some of my mates out, trying to convince him some of it. I've got time, dinner's on the table. Oh, right. I'm no. just about getting to sell anything, I'm giving anything away. We're not selling anything, no, no, no. Interested. No, don't are, worry, are, we're, not, are, are we're not selling anything. No. I must have inadvertently had the look of someone who was selling something, and all my instincts told me this was not something the man was comfortable with. Once I'd convinced him that I wasn't, however... Didn't know him. No, I thought I was in America. He still wasn't able to help. Okay. His name was... Funny name. Mary. Thank you. What was Mary's name? We bought this off. Rudgers. Rudgers. So, Rudgers had definitely lived there. But the man, like his bungalow, kept a low profile. Yep, yep sorry to you disturb you. Thank you. The police weren't sharing much either. They were staying tight-lipped and were clearly going to remain so. In dire need of expertise, I secured the services of an ex-police officer, Charles Shoebridge, security analyst and former Scotland Yard detective. He agreed to review the Bullen case with me. And Charles had come up with a theory. It's a possibility that this is a chap who, if you like, is leading something of a double life. He has a secret life, if you like, a fantasy life, a Walter Mitty-type character. He's acquiring all his weapons because someday he thinks he might need them in preparation for some form of mission in his mind or perhaps in preparation for some eventuality in the future. In case the apocalyptic day comes, in case one day a very left-wing or very right-wing government comes into place and that resistance movement needs founding and so on. You've also then, I think, it would be reasonable to put into this mix the change of name, remind me, Chris... Uh, Chris Rogers, Chris is, Rogers. His, is his pseudonym. It's an, a name that conjures up, to me anyway, images of secret agents. It's very different from his, if you like, normal mundane name that he had before, the name like all the rest of us have. And if he's creating, even to the extent of changing his name, a false persona for himself, that name is for him more in keeping with this arsenal that he's acquired. He clearly felt that nobody could love a spy called Bernard. But was that the last word? I think police will have established to a certain degree of certainty um, in their own minds as to what this story is in terms of whether it's as a fantasist or whether it's as just a naive person. But nonetheless there may still be that niggling 1% that says, yeah, but what if? What if there's something we haven't discovered? If we had more resources and more time, we could discover. It's often the case that there's a little bit of mystery left behind. Not least, that name. I had one call left to make. Hello, Royston Martin. Royston Martin, surname's expert. What could he tell me about our man's bizarre alias? It's Rogers R-U-double-D... J-E-R-S. Wow. That's strange, isn't it? Um, do you have any uh, notion of where that might come from? Or has he just made it up? I, I've got a hundred million parish records in my own personal library which cover the UK and Ireland. Right. But I can get into any country in the world with surnames. Yes. And there aren't any. Well, there's no Rogers. Not with that spelling... So he's come up with a name that, that literally has no no precedence at all? No. There's got to be a reason, isn't there? 
Whatever that reason, the name he chose is as enigmatic as he was, a name utterly unique that doesn't have a single anagram and returns nothing on a web search, completely untraceable. He communicated in handwritten letters, paid his bills in cash, no visitors, no relatives. So, Chris Rogers. Assassin, spy, terrorist, apocalyptic survivalist, hero or villain, Bond or Blofeld. Or plain old Bernard Bullen, retired nurse with a fertile imagination. Take your pick. The only man with the definitive answer is dead. Or is he? Tracy was played by Robert Blythe. Punt P.I. was produced by Lawrence Grizel. And next week, the mysteries of the woman in black and the 1928 Charfield rail crash. In a couple of minutes, Sue Cameron of the Daily Telegraph asks the former Conservative Chancellor Lord Lawson and the Labour MP Geoffrey Robinson if the government's new economic plan is more than just a licence to build conservatories. And could Birmingham be the answer to the great airport dilemma? The week in Westminster follows the news. The 2012 BBC Proms, from Barenboim's Beethoven to Wallace and Gromit, with 85 unforgettable concerts along the way. The season climaxes tonight, a spectacular last night of the Proms, featuring the violinist Nicola Benedetti, the tenor Joseph Kaleha, and of course, Elgar Parry and Henry Wood. The last night of the BBC Proms, live over on BBC Radio 3, tonight from half past seven.